0: Okay. We are going to go ahead and get started. Uh unlike the weekend where that uh people may drift in at other at all times beyond just straight up at the hour, uh we have a full hour of teaching tonight. So I want to make sure we honor everybody's time and get through this. I I'll tell you that uh this is my first evening teaching since my heart surgery. So I I went home and I took an hour and a half nap. <laughs> So I'd be ready and strong, and I feel really good tonight. Uh, and I'll tell you this too: my my first love is teaching. I, I really I love to teach. Uh, if 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 it were just about me and what I love, we would just do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, every weekend at Spring Creek. But I know a lot of people don't get into that, so <laughs> we don't. But maybe when I'm old and decrepit, and you don't want me as your pastor anymore, you'll just let me teach a class where I can just go all the way through the Bible. Um, but you know, I mean, we, we, when you study, when you study the scriptures, you study even the sermons of the Bible, you find that that kind of teaching is actually fairly uncommon. The most common type of sermon in the Bible is topical sermons. I mean, Jesus was a topical preacher. The apostle Paul was a topical preacher. Um, it's one of the things that if you are a minister, it's one of the things you love, one of the things you study. Now, let me just give you a couple of things right front. Uh, tonight, um, Parts of uh, this lesson tonight is going to feel like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, I'm going to be giving you a lot of information, and I don't expect you to necessarily retain that tonight. What I want you to know is, number one, we're recording this so you can always go back and get more later, okay? But I want to give you a good overview of what's necessary to be good in Bible study. And you will acquire those things more and more uh, as you study and as you learn these things. But I'm doing some things for you that uh, I haven't done for others. One, and I didn't make this available before the service, but after we're done tonight, I have these uh, inserts. And this is kind of a Bible study cheat sheet, and it's front and back, and it's the things you need to look for when you're studying the Bible. When I first learned these skills, and I laminated them, because, you know, if you just copy something sick in your Bible— and you leave it in there too long, you'll see it on both sides of the page because the carbon will come off of the copy. So these are laminated. They'll go nicely in your Bible. I kept a laminated sheet like this in my Bible for about two or three years till I just learned to look for these things all the time. And it really improved my time in God's Word. And thinking of people that maybe need a larger print, there's a larger print version that's an 8x10. This is nice and easy, fits in your Bible you don't see, but they're going to be available. So after the service, you can come up front, and I have them on the stage. But after we're done tonight, I want you to get them. And I only want you to take one for yourself, okay? We will have more of these available later, but we've made enough for everybody to have one tonight. So just take one for yourself. Uh, The other thing I want to mention just briefly uh, is this book. Uh, When I was in seminary, this method that I'm teaching you is called Inductive Bible Study. Uh, I think it's really the best way to study the Bible. This book is called The Joy of Discovery. We have them available in our bookstore. Uh, It looks like it's uh, $9.99, so $10. This book, if you enjoy what you hear tonight and you think, I need more of this understanding, what this book will do is in a series of, uh, looks like 14 lessons, it will walk you through these same principles and some other things it's a great thing to do with with friends. You could do it as a Bible study with some friends. This is literally, and, and I've you know I've been to seminary and I've studied this with some of the best books that are out there. This is really one of the best books out there, and it's very accessible. You don't feel like you have to, you know, be a New Testament scholar to get this. It's good stuff. So Oleta Wald's book, The Joy of Discovery in Bible Study, we have them available in our bookstore. So I want to begin. Talking about this, I don't want to spend much time on it because we're going to be talking about it this weekend. The number one reason that we don't grow spiritually is the fear of looking like a beginner. You know, so many of us, what we do is is we hide our inexpertise. We 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 want to pretend to have knowledge we don't have. We want to pretend to be at a more advanced stage. We want to pretend that we really do understand how to get more out of our Bible, and pretending gets you nowhere. It's it's just so much easier just to admit. All of us are a beginner at some level, and if you didn't get it at some time in the past, that's not necessarily your fault. Maybe you've never been taught. And so I want to teach you tonight. This is the other thing I want to show you. It's a quote by Jesse Jackson. You may not like the guy, but this is one of the most profound quotes I've ever heard. You can't teach what you don't know, and you can't lead where you won't go. Uh, If you don't know it, you can't give it away to others. And ultimately, you know, if we want to be like the Bible encourages us to be good students of the word, that we rightly divide it, that we understand how to understand it, uh, then we really need to know how to do that. Now, what I want to begin with is just with the Bible itself. And this is a a little chart. I actually made it uh, some years ago, and it shows kind of this continuum. Because if you go into a Mardell's or a Christian bookstore, and you, you say, I'm going in to buy a Bible, and all of a sudden there's this wall full of Bibles, and you think, what Bible am I supposed to choose? Well, what I want to show you first are the differences in the kind of translations that are out there and why they're there, and then I want to talk to you about the things that I recommend. So there's kind of this continuum on the far right on this chart, and you don't have to try to take this down. We'll make this available later. Uh, New American Standard, uh, the King James, those are more word-for-word, uh, word, more literal. And as you go to the far left, they're much more of a paraphrase. And if you don't want to know what those words mean, I'm going to show you. Okay, so I want to begin with literal translation. So these were the Bibles on the very far right. A literal translation is designed to give the most accurate word-for-word word rendering of the original. So you know that the, the Bible, the original manuscripts were not written in English. <laughs> they were. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Chaldean, and the New Testament was written in Greek with some smatterings of Aramaic. And if you really want to understand the originals, you'd have to go back and learn those languages. Well, I had to study those languages back in seminary and in Bible college. I've spent years, had to translate word for word several New Testament books. And I would just tell you right up front, the most accurate translation. If you wanted to almost be given, here's a copy of the original Hebrew and Greek, the most accurate translation is the New American Standard Bible, okay? It is almost word for word, exactly what the original said. But I'll also tell you this, it's harder to read. It's harder to read because most languages, how many of you ever study a foreign language in school? Almost everybody here, okay? When you study a foreign language, other languages, they don't express things exactly the same way we do. When you, when you talk about a house and the color of a house in Spanish, you'd say a casa blanca, right? You, a, a, a house white. We don't speak that way. So is it be- better when you're translating to English to go ahead and put it the way we say it? A white house? Or to say a house white? You know, one's literal, one is kind of, you know, it, it understands that as English speakers we say it a different way. Well, the NASB tries to preserve as much as possible the original flow of the language, and so it feels wooden. It feels like a very exact translation. It is sometimes difficult to read because it's that exact. The King James also kind of falls into that category, but the King James um, Didn't exclusively depend on the original manuscripts. It was also dependent on uh, the Latin Vulgate, so it was a translation of a translation. But I'll tell you, if you use a King James, here's the challenges, and it's anachronisms. Anachronisms are older ways of saying things. Language changes, doesn't it? I mean, just in a generation, when I was young, uh, the things, the words I used then don't necessarily, they're they're not the same words we use now. Uh, And there's a lot of words in the King James that have fundamentally changed. In fact, there's 200 words in the King James that mean the complete opposite of what they meant in 1611. So here's a great example. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, this is a verse about the Holy Spirit. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he, the Holy Spirit, who now letteth, will let until he be taken out of the way. If I say, let me do something, what am I asking you? Give me permission, Right? That's not what the word let means in, ancient King, in, in, in King James. It means to stop or to hinder. Okay, so it's the complete opposite. I'm asking for permission. I say, let me do that. Well, if you're reading the King James and you're thinking the Holy Spirit is letting this happen, no, it's saying that he's hindering, he's stopping the, the, the ongoing work of iniquity in the world. How about this, Philippians 127? Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel. When I think about conversation, I think about talking, you and I. That's not what the word conversation means in King James Elizabethan English. It means lifestyle, okay? So, so if you own a King James and you're reading regularly from a King James, but you're reading modern definitions into old words, you're not understanding the Bible you're reading. How about this? And we have confidence in the Lord touching you. So we want God to touch people. No, that's not what that means, okay? Yes, we want God to touch people. But that verse is saying, Touching you is concerning you, okay? So they just said things in a different way, and if you're not an Elizabethan English scholar, you probably don't understand the King James. So in the King James, you'll notice the word allege means to prove, whereas we would say allege means it's not proven. Prevent means to proceed. By and by means immediately. A lot of anachronisms. That's a literal translation. What I prefer are what's called a dynamic equivalence translation. So these are Bibles that attempt to translate the original into the nearest language or cultural equivalent. Okay, so a good example of this, the NIV, the New International Version, and the New Living Translation. These are dynamic equivalence translations. So let me show you what that means. So as an English speaker, we would say, I press toward the mark. So this is a runner, he's pushing toward the final tape, if you will. But in Navajo, if you translated that literally, it would make no sense. What they would say is, I run with my mouth open, okay? That sounds absurd to us, but they get the meaning when you say it like that. So the question is, what is better, to be literal or to give the dynamic equivalence, to show people what it means in their language? Let me give you another example of this. In English, we always talk about, I love you. I love you with all my heart. We put the heart emoji, emojis on everything, right? That means love. Well, did you know the Kari people of French Equatorial Africa, they love with their liver? If I love you, I, I love you with all my liver. I hate to see that emoji, okay? But, but they love with their liver. How about the Kanab Indians of Guatemala? They love with their stomachs. Marshall Islanders in the South Pacific, they love with their throats. That's where they believe love is seated. you know? I mean, it may sound weird to you, but if you're translating then the Bible about God wanting to change and transform the heart, do you refer to the part that is the seat of the emotions for them, or do you say heart and totally miss the point? Here's a great example for us. Literally, in case you didn't know this, in the original, in Philippians 1.20, yea, brother, let me have my joy of thee in the Lord, refresh my bowels in the Lord. I think of something besides loving somebody. But in the first century, you love people with your bowels. Now think about this. Okay, think about it. Think about people that have uh, real stress, all, uh, you know, colitis and things like that. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times that feeling of stress and stuff is, is held lower than the heart. So a lot of people began to associate that part of our body with feeling. So if the Bible literally says that, and it does in the original, isn't it better to say, I do wish my brother that I have some benefit from you, refresh my heart in Christ, rather than refresh my bowels? A, a dynamic equivalence will give the nearest meaning instead of the exact word. I like dynamic equivalence, and I think the NIV is literally one of the best in terms of dynamic equivalence. So dynamic equivalence... They operate according to the rule, as literal as possible, but as free as necessary. Then there are expanded translations. Now, these are Bibles that what they do is they, they, they help you understand that sometimes a single word doesn't adequately convey the meaning from another language, um, and, and you probably found that, you know, that uh, I, I do this when I travel. I've traveled in Africa and all over Central and, and South America, and people will say, well, It's not just a word. I'd have to say what that means is this, and they give a big long sentence, you know, and they explain what a word means. Well, Greek and English are the same way. Uh, And so an expanded translation, what it does is it tries to give the full range of meaning when it translates. So here's an example from Matthew 5. Literally in the NASB, so this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you use an expanded translation like the Amplified Bible, another Bible is called Weist Expanded Translation. It's only available in the New Testament. But if you expanded it so that you gave the full range of meaning, it would say blessed, happy, to be envied and spiritually prosperous. That is, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward condition. That's the translation for blessed, okay? Are the poor in spirit, the humble, rating themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the prim- amplified translation is every single verse in the Beatitudes begins the same way like that. So every time it says the word blessed, it gives that full range of meaning. It's very wordy. You, you, You feel kind of overwhelmed by it. But if you really want to get a better sense of the passage, sometimes it's good to have something like an amplified Bible in your library, which I've had and I've worn mine out, just to occasionally just read and not necessarily reading books of the Bible, but a chapter or something you're reading, just going back and reading that again in the Amplified. Um, here is a, here's another example of Amplified translation. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption, which is deliverance or salvation. Through his blood, the remission or forgiveness of our offenses, our shortcomings, our trespasses, in accordance with the riches, generosity of his gracious favor. Again, it gives you a greater flavor because it's trying to give you the full range and depth of the words that are there. The final kind of Bible translation, if you will, is not really a translation, it's called a paraphrase. So a paraphrase Bible is a Bible that tries to give, um, in, in other words, it's also almost like, I'm going to read this verse, and then I'm going to tell you what it means in my own words. That's what it does. It doesn't try to preserve the order. It doesn't try to preserve necessarily everything exactly the way it was said. I just want to give the meaning as I see it. The first paraphrase uh, that was in English was the Living Bible, Kenneth Taylor. And he, he, he made that Bible because his kids hated to read the King James Bible, and they didn't understand it. And so he said, I'm just going to explain it to them in my own words. Uh, Another is called the Good News Bible, and that was a Catholic version of a paraphrase. It's actually, it's a good paraphrase, but the best paraphrase on the market, bar none, it's one of my favorite reading Bibles of all time, is the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a scholar of the highest rank, and uh, he just actually died just about maybe 10 days ago, Uh, really sad at his passing. Um, and, And in fact, Peterson didn't really believe the Message Bible was a paraphrase. He really believed that this was a translation. He just didn't feel compelled to use all the same words. Uh, but it's, it's, it's excellent, and I have read that, uh, the paraphrase many times. So, you know, just for an enjoyable reading Bible, I love the Message Bible. So I don't just own one Bible. I own several types of Bibles. Now, the paraphrase, uh, and this is, I'll just mention this. In the New Testament, by the time you get to the time of Christ, many Jews had lived in exile for so long that they only spoke Greek and they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. So one of the first translations in history is called the Septuagint. And if you're ever reading an old uh, history book, you'll, re- you'll see it referred to as the LXX, which is the Roman numerals for 70 because there were 70 scholars to help to put this book together. The Septuagint, what's interesting about it, it's quoted. It's quoted a lot uh, in the New Testament. In fact, um Let's see, there's 300 quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and two-thirds of those are quoted directly from the Septuagint. And we know that because the Septuagint still exists. We can still look at this translation of the Bible. You want to know what kind of translation it was? About a third of it's literal, about a third of its dynamic equivalents, and about a third of it's paraphrased. It's all of the above. So if you're just saying, you know, there's only one kind of Bible, well, the Bible Jesus used and the, and the Bible the disciples used was a Septuagint. And it was all of those different types of Bibles, okay? Then you might think of it like this. So a dynamic equivalence like the NIV or the New Living Translation is as literal as possible and free only when necessary. A paraphrase is the opposite. It's as free as possible and literal only when necessary. It leads to a problem, and that is like with Kenneth Taylor, Kenneth Kenneth Taylor was saying these scriptures in his own words, but it didn't mean he was right. It's almost like he's making an interpretation. So literally in Zechariah 2.8, the scriptures say, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Do you know who the apple of God's eye is? It's Israel, okay? And it's really clear in the context he's referring to Israel. Kenneth Taylor, when he paraphrased that for his kids, the Lord of glory has sent me against the nations that oppressed you, for he who harms you sticks his finger in Jehovah's eye. Okay, so it's not really, you know, it would mislead you sometimes to read a paraphrase because somebody's giving their opinion about what it means. Now, if you want to know in terms of readability, Bible translation reading levels, what you, the level of education you need to really understand, the King James Version requires 12th grade reading level which, by the way, most Americans don't read at a 12th grade reading level. We, we, we read at 5th and 6th grade re- reading levels. I think the uh, USA Today is written at a 5th or 6th grade reading level. Uh, the Revised Standard Version is 12th grade. New American Standard is 11th grade. New Revised Standard. The New International Version, you see 7th and 8th grade. Uh, new King James is a 7th grade reading level. I had friends that actually worked on that translation. The New Living Translation is the sixth grade level and the message at a fourth or fifth grade level. So it's one of the reasons why the message is really immensely popular because it really hits the sweet spot of where most Americans are in terms of their basic reading level. Uh, So what I want to do now is I want to start getting into what we look for when it comes to study. Uh, Hermeneutics is really just, you may have heard that term before, it's the science or art of biblical interpretation. It comes from... uh, The original word Hermes, which was one of the Greek gods, and he was the God who served as a messenger to the gods. So when we study hermeneutics, when we study the laws of interpretation, we're trying to be a messenger of, you know, here's what God has said, and we want to translate that now to people so that they can understand. I love this. This is uh, R.C. Sproul. Uh, The Bible is basically clear and lucid. It is simple enough for any literate person to understand its basic message. That is not to say that all of the parts are equally clear or that there are no difficult passages or sections to be found in it. Laymen, unskilled in the ancient languages and fine points of exegesis may have difficulty with parts of the scripture, but the essential content is clear enough to be understood easily. And that is so true. I mean, most of what we find in the Bible and what I'm gonna give you tonight and next week is gonna make it so accessible to you. Now, I have a book, and we have just a couple of these in our bookstore out here, but Kathy said she could get more. And I have recommended this to a lot of young believers. It's called When Critics Ask. It was written by Norm Geisler and Thomas Howe. The reason I like this book so much, and we have it in the bookstore for 16 bucks, the two copies we have, and I'm holding one of them. What I like about this is it is indexed to the Bible. So as you're reading along and maybe you just come across a really difficult passage— Norm Geisler is a Christian apologist. He's he's a really great defender of the Christian faith. But he'll show you, you know, here's here's the problem that people find in the text. Here's what they have trouble reconciling. And it's just a great handbook to have. Another book I'll recommend to you, and I don't have a copy of it with me tonight, is simply a book called Where to Find It in the Bible. So what it is, it's a topical index of the Bible. Let's say you're at home and you think, you know, I want... I want some verses on addiction, or I want to know some verses about parenting. Well, in a typical Bible, all you have is this concordance, and a concordance is the exact word. And if you just look up the word parent, you're not gonna find a lot of verses, but you're gonna find plenty of verses about parenting that don't mention the name parent. Does that make sense? And so this topical index, where to find it in the Bible, it's a cheap, inexpensive copy, pick that thing up, use it all the time. Oh, one other thing I'll just mention real quickly. Um, a lot of us, I bought this for myself last year uh, because it'd been a long time since I had a leather Bible and it's so pretty, I hardly use it. Uh, it you know, it was just a nice leather bound Bible. Somebody would give me a, uh, an Amazon gift card and I thought, well, this will be great. Most of the Bibles I own are not leather bound. Most of the Bibles I buy are hard bound Bibles. They're the cheapest Bibles, but they last. If you're into studying it and using it and you want a Bible that doesn't tear up, I can tell you, and I don't mean this as a brag, I have gone through three or four leather bound Bibles, just worn them out where they they couldn't be used anymore. And so typically now when I buy a Bible, I buy a Bible that has no notes. It's just text. In fact, I found this at a bookstore and it was like 10 bucks because somebody else's name was on it and they evidently didn't want it. And so I had to just scratch off their name so people didn't think I stole it. And uh, and this is the Bible I read from all the time. I bought this like last year too. Um, in terms of study Bibles, okay, if you want a, a Bible that has good notes in it, that, you know, occasionally when you get stuck and you just want to go down and you want to read a note that refers to that verse. In my opinion, the best Bible study Bible is the NIV study Bible. It's just great. And I, I've, I've had this version in hardback for years. And that's, that was my number one study Bible. And you can get that only in NIV. There's another book that's really good, another study Bible. It's called the Life Application Bible. It's also in our bookstore. Uh, they have that available in the NIV and the New Living Translation. Between the new NIV and the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation is an easier read. Okay, it's an it's a more understandable version of the Bible. But what's great about it is the Life Application Bible. As you're reading, it its notes mostly reflect this is how you apply this to your life. This is how it makes sense. Okay, so those are the two study Bibles I would recommend: the NIV Study Bible and the uh, life application Bible. So let's begin to start learning about these skills. Uh, These are the basics. Uh, The basics, this is a a poem, real well-known poem by Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. Those are the most important words in Bible study is when you begin to study, you just start asking these questions. You say, who? You know, Who is performing or receiving the action of this sentence or paragraph? What? What is occurring? When? When is it occurring? Is there a sequence of events happening? Where? Where is the action occurring? Does this location change within the paragraph? Why? What's the goal or purpose of the action? Who benefits? What's his or her motivation? Again, I'll make all these available online because I'm just going to be hitting so many of these things you won't have time to take them all down. How, what is the means or manner of accomplishing that action? So we're going to camp out most of our time on this important things to note. Things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related, things that are alike, things that are unlike, and things that are true to life. And what we're going to do is as we do that, I'm going to show you each one of these. Now, you don't have a lot of space on your paper to write all of this, but the first thing, things that are emphasized, How does the Bible emphasize a point? Well, one of the first ways is the amount of space given to it. Uh, In Bible study, they call that uh, the principle of proportion. Do we have that? Nope. Okay. So, the principle of proportion, which basically says what's most important to an author, they dedicate the most space to. So, if you were to read, like, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where Israel rejects God as their king, and they ask God, give us a king to rule over us. Remember this story? So the Bible dedicates like three verses to that request, and then it takes nine verses and explains the high cost of having a king. And the phrase that's used over and over and over again in what Samuel says to Israel is, he will take, he will take. He will take your sons, he'll take your daughter. He's going to take your lands, he's going to take your money. He's going to do all the; he's going to take. And so he warns them, but you know that that's the main emphasis because of the amount of space that's given to it. Well, if you want to know the kind of view from 30,000 feet of scripture, if you want an outline of just the entire Bible, this is it. It's all about redemption. It's all about God on this rescue mission for humanity. The first 11 chapters are the need for redemption. Remember, we did a series... Last year, I want to say, called The Story of Us, which was all about the Genesis record from Genesis 1 through chapter 11. It's all about the need for redemption. That humanity's messed up. The channel of redemption from Genesis 12 to Malachi, that's the, enti- the rest of the Old Testament. It's telling the story of a people, Israel, and God narrowing that channel to bring Messiah into the world. When you get to the Gospels, it's the purchase of redemption. It's Christ coming and what he does to purchase our redemption in Acts chapter, in the book of Acts, you have the proclamation as the message is going out around the world. In Romans through Jude, we call those books the epistles. That is the explanation of redemption. And then finally in Revelation, we have the consummation of it all, how God is going to wrap it all up and bring redemption to the rest of the world. That's the outline of the Bible. So how does the Bible emphasize a point? Well, it also does it by purpose statements. Uh, You'll find many purpose statements within a book. You'll be reading a book. Some of them will come up front. Some of them will come at the end. In the Gospel of John, the purpose, the reason why John writes, he tells us at the end of that book, this is it. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Jesus did a lot of stuff I didn't write about. That's what John is saying. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. There's three important words in this verse, and they occur frequently in the Gospel of John. The first is signs. There's a lot of other signs that I could have written about, but I didn't write about. First question you have to ask yourself, how's a sign different from a miracle? Do you know? A sign is different from a miracle. A sign is an indication of the very person of Christ. It's not just something supernatural that happens. A sign is significant. It is telling us something beyond the miracle about the very nature of the Christ. So there's a lot of other signs, but he's chose some signs specifically for this book. But these are written why? That you might believe. Believe is the next word. And believe, the gospel of John is called the gospel of belief because believe is key throughout all the stories of John. And if we believe, we might have life. Signs believe life. That's the message of the gospel of John. And those are the words that he camps out on again and again. So here you have John's gospel. If you went back and you say, what are the signs? He could have included a lot of other miracles. He includes seven. These are the seven miracles in the gospel of John. Okay. That very first one, changing the water into wine. Now we understand that's miraculous, but why is it a sign? Why is it a sign That the Son of God appears at a wedding. They run out of wine. His mother comes and say, hey, we've run out of wine. Can you do something? And Jesus decides to change this water in these large jars into wine. Why is that a sign? I'll tell you why it's a sign. And I didn't understand this for years. This is where you start paying attention to what's going on. Now, the Bible tells us there were six jars, large jars, about 30 gallons apiece, for ceremonial purification, which means that the Pharisees and the people of Jesus' day, they're coming in. They're not washing their hands for sanitary reasons. They're doing this elaborate purification ritual where you go in and you have to run the water down your arms in a certain way and all this. It's this purification to be ceremonially pure at the wedding. So when Jesus goes to those pots that everyone is becoming ceremonially pure through, and he changes that water into wine, what is not going to be happening at the wedding from then on out? Nobody's going to be doing this business in wine, right? Why is this a sign? Because the one who truly purifies the soul has arrived at the wedding. You see? So it's not about what's happened. It's not so much about the miracle. It's about what's going to not happen as a result of that. In fact, even the next story in John does the same thing. It's about what not happened, but we won't get into that. Okay, so how does the Bible emphasize a point? Another is through order or placement. So here's an example. Uh, When you have the listing of the disciples, almost always you have, notice halfway down that verse, Simon, who was named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, and then it names all the others. Well, Peter, James, and John are almost always singled out as first. And there's a reason for that. In the Gospels, they're included on three special times when the other disciples are not. At the raising of Jairus' daughter, they're the only ones that witness. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, the only ones there. They're the only ones who went further into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They were the ones who went in there to pray with him. When you get to the book of Acts, the Bible describes Peter, James, and John as being pillars of the new church. So so God had a very special mission in mind for Peter, James, and John. There were 12 in his immediate company, but three got an access to Jesus that the others did not. He poured into their lives, made a huge difference. So oftentimes it's the order or placement. Uh, We did this in the Bible study a couple of weeks online. If you didn't watch that, you can go back on Facebook and watch it. In Acts 1-8, this is one of the five great commission passages in the New Testament. So the Great Commission is where Jesus commissions his disciples to go into all the world and spread the message. It's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, 46 to 48, John 20, 21, and this in Acts 1.8. Now, Acts 1.8, what's interesting about it is this enumeration at the end of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. I told you there's a geographic progression there. Jerusalem's a city. Judea is the country that it's in. Samaria is the country immediately north. The ends of the earth is every place else. So there's this geographic progression. There's also an ethnic progression because the people who lived in Jerusalem, Judea, are Jews. The people who lived in Samaria, they're kind of half breed Jews. They're Jews that married in with other people. The rest of the earth are Gentiles. But you know what else is important about this verse? This is the outline of the book of Acts. It's right at the beginning. And if you read through the book of Acts, this is the way the book lays out. The story is first about Jerusalem, then it's about Judea, then Samaria, then the rest of the world. Another thing is the rule of end stress. The rule of end stress is a really important rule. It's been around for all time. We even use it in the English language. The kids' stories that you tell your children, the three little bears, right? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, that's, so that's the Goldilocks and three bears. What are, the three little pigs, you know? On every one of those stories, the key element where, you know, if somebody finally figures it out, where it all finally works out is always the third character, Right? When you have one person, uh, when you have one person, it's just about that isolated individual. When you have two, it's typically comparing and contrasting. When you have three, you get to the rule of end stress. When you see three of something, always pay attention to the third thing, and I'll tell you why. One is the third day motif, so you can follow this from the Old Testament into the New. Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah, which would be where Golgotha, where Christ would be crucified. But the Bible says on the third day, he finds the ram caught in the, in the thicket. It, the substitute is there, and Isaac is spared. Uh, in the book of Esther, uh, Esther calls on the people to fast uh, because she's going to go before the king because there's this death threat that's hanging over the people, and on the third day, they're delivered. Uh, you have the story of the Ark of the Covenant that's captured, remember, by the Philistines, and they take it into their temple. And on the third day, Dagon, their God, is laying on his face prostrate, and his head is broken off, and his hands and feet are broken off. And, of course, all of this is pointing to a bigger reality that on the third day, Jesus would rise from the dead. Three-day stories are important. Uh, You have have the third sign to Elijah. Remember, Elijah is the prophet, and he calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice. Amazing story. Then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he runs for his life. He gets as far away as possible, and he's, he's in this cave, and he's, feel, he's feeling all bad about himself, and God shows up. And the Bible says, first, there's this great wind, and it nearly blows him off the side of the mountain. The second thing that happens is there's an earthquake, so the whole mountain is shaking. And the Bible says in each of those times, and God was not in it. God was not in the wind. God's not in the earthquake. And then the Bible says there's a fire, a great fire. And the Bible says, and God was not in the fire. This is another third day. This is a three-element a, a, a three story. Why is, it, why is that significant? Because just a couple of days before, God was in the fire. God was in the fire when he called down the fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice. God answered with fire, but God's not answering with fire now. Then what happens is a still, small voice. See, God is saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm not just the God of the spectacular. I'm the God that you need right now. Uh, you have, uh, in Luke 15, you have three stories. You have a story of uh, lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. The third story is a story that's so elaborate. It's so important. So that's a rule of end stress. Pay attention to threes in the Bible. Chiastic structure is uh, is the common name. It's also called intercalation. So I'm going to show you this the first way I saw it. Well, let me explain it first here. I think it's going to go back. Maybe. All right. All right. So Jewish people told stories differently the way we tell stories. We tell stories, they tend to climax. And the, the, the moral of the story, if you will, is at the very end. Jewish people put the moral of the story in the center. Uh, so the way the story is told, it kind of is like climbing a mountain. The story builds step by step till you ascend the mountain. Once you reach the top, you're told what the story is all about. Then you descend down the other side. So I'll give you some uh, a couple of examples of this. This is all over the the scripture. Okay, so uh, this is not it. This this is the first time I ever saw it. Okay, so I was in seminary and somebody said this is chiastic structure. So this is Jesus' very first sermon uh, in his hometown of Nazareth. What I want you to notice is it says, he went to the synagogue, he stood up to read, it was given to him the prophet of Isaiah, the scroll, he opens the book, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the good news to the poor, release the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. But what I want you to notice is recovery of sight to the blind is at the very center of the story. But the line that came before and the line that came after are are talking about the same thing. Line F corresponds with line F, line E with line E. I mean, it's just... The elements of the story, can you see it in that? I mean, I I hate to spend a whole lot of time explaining it, but the element of the story builds exactly to a certain center level, and then it steps back, giving the same elements in reverse order, okay? This is the way Jewish people wrote. Do you know the entire book of Daniel is written this way? The entire book of Daniel, so that the, 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 the message of the book of Daniel is at the center of the book. If you don't understand how Jewish people wrote you will often miss the meaning because Jewish people would take the center. A, a, a simple chiastic structure when Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. That's chiastic. I begin with losing my life or, or throwing my life away, but it's all if I if I try to save my life, I lose it. Then if I lose it, I save it. So losing the life is the application or the center or the emphasis of that story. So we have a couple of others. This is uh, Mark chapter five. Sometimes it can be topical. This is Mark five in the Gadarean demoniac. Uh, This is Genesis 11. Uh, That entire chapter verses one through nine builds a chiastic structure so that that story, this is the story of Babel, uh, the building of the tower of Babel. The center uh, line there is the main point in the story. So that's chiastic structure. Sometimes it's about moving from the lesser to the greater or vice versa. If you've ever read this verse, this is a verse from Corinthians. Let's see, did I go too far? Now, the body's not made of one part, but many. When you read this verse, you've got to picture a human body. If you don't picture a human body in this verse, you're going to miss the point, okay? So if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body. So you see a place way down here and being a place up here, right? And then, and if the ear, a lower part, should say to the eye, a higher part, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? but in that God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. So as Paul's writing this story, he's traveling up the body and he's saying the people that are looking at higher parts of the body, they have this sense of inferiority that I just don't belong. And can you see how that people, when they feel low and they look at other people that they perceive to be higher than them, they feel bad about themselves? And then what Paul does is the next verse, he reverses it. So again, picture the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, from the hand from the eye down to the hand. So this is about feelings of superiority. I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Again, it's it's from higher to lower, and there's an intentionality in the way he's writing writing this story. Um, you can also see flow. This is from the book of Jonah, in the first chapter. Just notice in the center he's running away from God. In chapter two, he's running back to God. In chapter three, he's finally running with God. and chapter four, he runs ahead of God. So you always want to watch for movement in the story. You also want to watch for emphasis through absence. So this is a time when Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. And whenever you see a list in the Bible, you need to really pay attention. Jesus says to him, because the guy says, I've kept all the commandments of God. Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Do you see any problem at all with what was just said? If you're looking at the list of commandments that Jesus just listed off, he left one off. He left the last one off. He left the 10th commandment out. And the 10th commandment is don't covet. And the 10th commandment is very different from the other commandments. It's very different in that every other commandment that you break, there's evidence for it. If you lie, there's some untruth out there that people can uncover, right? If you murder, there's a body, right? If you steal, you have something in your possession that doesn't belong to you. If you've been dishonoring to your parents, it's in your behavior, your actions. There is something tangible that people can see but you can covet every day of your life and nobody will ever know. It's a really unique commandment. In fact, Paul makes a comment about this in the book of Romans. He said, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I really would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. And I wouldn't have known what a sinner I am had the Bible said, sin is not just about external observable behavior. It's about wanting what doesn't belong to you. And when you want what doesn't belong to you, that's a sin. This rich young ruler, his sin was coveting. Jesus leaves it out on purpose. And the guy is okay with, hey, yeah, you know, all the other commandments I've kept externally. But Jesus is going to get to the heart of all this stuff when he says, okay, then sell what you have and follow me. He's speaking to the issue of covetousness. So you want to pay attention to that. In, in Luke 15, Luke 15 is a great story. This is the prodigal son. When he's in the pigsty and he hits rock bottom, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. He's rehearsing this speech. I'm gonna say to my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men, right? But when he shows up later, what does he say? Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the third thing is never mentioned. Okay, so why? He rehearsed what he was gonna say And the moment he says that, then his father falls on him and he kisses him and he puts the robe on me and all that. So let's think about it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Did he do that? You better believe he did. He sinned against God and he sinned against his dad. Is he worthy to be called a son? No, he's not worthy. Like none of us are worthy to be called a son. Make me like one of your hired men was the last thing he was going to say. And the father won't let him say those words. You know why? Because a son is a son and will always be a son. You can't send yourself out of sonship. And that's really important. So when you're reading a story, and this guy has already said, This is what I'm gonna to say to my dad, and when he turns around and he says something, something's missing, you need to ask yourself, why is it missing? Things that are repeated. Okay. Gotta get up in my notes here. Things that are repeated. So Like in Hebrews 11, the word faith is repeated. The gospel of Mark, the key words immediately, it's the action gospel. 1 John, love. The word love occurs more in 1 John. So there's a lot of key words you're gonna find, things that are repeated often. Another thing are characters. Pay attention to characters. If you read the book of Acts, what you notice is when you first meet Barnabas and Paul, that's the order, always. Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas is the mentor, Paul is the protege. But there comes a point in time where it flips and it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And I'm not gonna tell you, but you need to ask yourself, why did it flip? Why is Paul now referred to in the leadership? In the book of Esther, And this is one of the beautiful things about the Bible. The Bible is not sexist. The Bible doesn't treat women as second class or every bit equal to men. And it begins by talking about Mordecai, who's the uncle, and Esther, the virgin queen, right? And then at some point in that narrative, the leadership switches, and it's Esther and Mordecai from then on out. It's really important to pay attention to those kind of shifts. There's another thing in the book of Acts. First time I ever studied the Bible with this method, I studied the book of Acts. What I noticed is the book of Acts begins first person plural. We're doing all these things. At a certain point, it's third person plural. They're doing all these things. And then by the time of the end of the book, it's switched back to first person. Why? Because Luke was writing the book as Luke is writing the book, he gets to a certain point in the journey, and he stays at a city, and the group goes on. So when he reports about what they did, it's no longer us, it's no longer we, it's they. And then when they come back through that same city, it comes back to first person plural again. He's rejoined the group. The Bible never says Luke stays, and Luke comes back and joins the group, it never says that, but you know that if you pay attention to the pronouns. So Incidents and Circumstances. Uh, The book of Judges, uh, it's about seven cycles of judgment. You can follow that through in that book. Uh, Patterns. In the Bible, you look for people, like in the Old Testament, a type of Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Did you know that? If you follow his story, they're both loved by their father, both Joseph and Jesus. They're both rejected by their family. They're both sold for the price of a slave. They were both carried into Egypt to avoid persecution. Uh, both Joseph and Christ were unjustly tried. Joseph was unjustly charged with trying to rape Potiphar's wife. Both were unjustly sold. Both suffered. Uh, both later were crowned with glory and honor. And both men were delivered from death. Powerful story. Jonah is another example, a pattern of Christ. You can pay attention to patterns in the Bible. And by the way, again, these handouts that I have for you have all these things listed. And as I told you, it's kind of like drinking out of a hose. I'm giving you a lot of stuff as you get familiar with these things and you start looking for these things, you won't need this handout anymore. You'll just begin to notice it and you'll see it all the time. This will be the framework with which you'll see the scripture. Uh, New Testament use of Old Testament passages. So 2 Corinthians 8 is a prime example of that. Uh, Things that are related um, in this verse in... uh, Matthew 6, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about acts of righteousness, and then he talks about specific acts, giving, praying, fasting. Uh, You want to pay attention to cause and effect, especially if-then statements. If my people do this, then I'll do this. You also want to pay attention to promises that are not conditional, that there is no if on. Do you know there's a really big promise in the Old Testament that has no conditions on it? The promise that God made to Abraham to make of him a great nation, to bless the people through his seed. God committed to that promise and said, it doesn't matter what you do, Abraham, that promise is going to be fulfilled because that's the promise that brought Jesus. Uh, Things that are alike. Uh, So you have similes, and these will be used like and as. You remember when you were a kid, you used to watch Conjunction Junction. Remember all the schoolhouse rock? And you thought, you know, you love those little commercials, but those those conjunctions, those little words are really important in understanding the Bible because the little words show the relationship between the big words. So like and as, where he calls the Pharisees like whitewashed tombs. A metaphor A metaphor is like a simile, but doesn't use the word like or as. So when Jesus says he's a good shepherd or he tells us you're the light of the world, things that are unlike, um, Matthew 5, you'll hear Jesus say again, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you this. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, when Jesus talks or uh, when Paul writes about the deeds of the flesh are evident, and he takes all those things to task, but then he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, there's negative metaphors. Uh, these are a couple of the toughest chapters in the Bible. Luke 16, the dishonest steward, a lot of scholars wrestle with that. Um where Jesus uses a very unscrupulous man as an illustration of something good. Also in Luke 18, there's this unjust judge who the widow goes to and asks for for justice again and again and again, uh, and only when she wears him down does he finally acquiesce. And people will misunderstand that and say, well, I just got to wear God down till he finally gives into my prayer request. And that's not what the passage is saying. What it's saying is, if men can be this hateful and this cruel and and be so unkind to widows, don't you know you have a good God that you don't have to wear down and break down to get him to answer your prayers? Things that are true to life, you can find the Bible's just a truth-telling book. Moses has a big anger problem. It, it's what keeps him out of the promised land. Samson battles lust. Noah's a righteous man, but he gets blind stinking drunk right after he's rescued from the flood. David's a man after God's own heart. He commits adultery. Jacob's family was just a mess. So these are the things, and I'm not going to spend time on this because I did this in a message a couple of weeks ago. The inductive Bible study method is observation, it is interpretation, and it is application. And this was the verse about the the sluggard. So I realize we are rapidly running out of time, and so I want to make sure I hit some important things here. Okay, so this is the story I told you about the watch. We did this in service and said how many times, you, you know, you look at your watch about 7,000 times a year. This, this poem says everything that I'm really trying to say about Bible study basics, especially about observation. Peering into the mists of gray that shroud the surface of the bay, nothing I see except a veil of fog surrounding every f- sail. Then suddenly against the cape, a vast and silent form takes shape. A great ship lies against the shore where nothing has appeared before. Who sees a truth must often gaze into a fog for many days. It may seem very sure to him, nothing is there but mist clouds dim. Then suddenly his eyes will see a shape where nothing used to be. Discoveries are missed each day by men who too soon turn away. The most important thing I can tell you tonight is learn to stay with the text till you see everything that is there. That's what observation's all about. This is the thing about big words and little words. These little words, and these are all on your uh, cheat sheet tonight. These little words tell us most of the meaning in the Bible. Uh, things like uh, cause and reason. You cite because, for this reason, since that. When you see those words, it's giving you a cause. Whenever you see the word, therefore, that begins a a verse like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. When you see the word, therefore, you ought to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? You know, because it's making a conclusion about something that came before. So if I really want to understand this conclusion, I need to read what came before that. Uh, So uh, comparison, you'll see. As, also, just, likewise, likewise, more, more than, so as, so also, too, Conditional promises are if, continuation, contrast. Again, these words are really vitally important when it comes to studying the Bible. Um, This is the Bible part of the Bible study we did um, online. So again, go online and watch that um, 15-minute study we did last week. I said if you read Acts 1-8, it begins with the word but. That tells you this is an incomplete thought that if you want to understand what this verse is about, you better read what came before. And if you read what came before, you realize this is an answer to a question. What the disciples wanted to know is, is, is Jesus, or is this the time you're coming back? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to, to us right now? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the days. In other words, I didn't put any of you on the date and time committee. That's not your job. But, but here's your job. You're to be a witness for me. So God didn't put me on the date and time committee. He put me on the get him ready committee. Okay. That's what every believer, that's what our job is. So what? And so what? This is the difference between observation and interpretation In observation. We're probing the verse. We're discovering, we're detecting, we're exploring what's there. And In interpretation, I'm beginning to mull it over and digest it and decide what it means and explain it. So this is the interpretive bridge. There's a biblical world that we're reading about that existed 2,000 years ago and beyond. And our present world and interpretation bridges that gap. But there's several gaps there, and here they are. There's a historical gap, there's a geographical gap, there's a cultural gap, a language gap, and a literary gap. So I'm just going to hit this first one and we'll just finish up on this um, particular point tonight, and then we'll pick up here and go on. Uh, next week. Next week too, I'm going to be covering the fact that the Bible is not just one type of literature. It's a book of books. There's many different types of literature in the Bible and those literatures are understood in different ways. So we'll talk about that, but let's talk about history first. So the Bible is an ancient book. First five Old Testament books were written by Moses around 1400 BC. The last book in the Bible revelation was written by John around AD 90. So some books are about 3,400 years old. But the last one written is about 1,900, 2,000 years ago. So in terms of history, you know, if if we don't understand something about the history of the time and the day that Jesus lived, we might miss some really important things. Like one of the things that I've mentioned to you before is before the church is born, before Christ appeared, Rome was dominating the world. Rome, a part of the way they kept their power is through the Caesar cult. Caesar was believed to be a god. Did you know that? There were temples to worship Caesar all around the world, including in Israel. This is called the praying inscription. It's a piece of archaeology. It's dated from before the time of Christ. I want you to hear this language because it's really important. The New Testament borrows this language. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave it to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving us the emperor Augustus, whom it providence filled with strength for the welfare of men, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become a God manifest Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times and surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally, the birthday of the God has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news, the gospel, the euangelion concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. So this language of Lord and gospel and church and peace, this was the propaganda of the empire and when jesus was born into this world one of the first things the church did is say caesar is not lord jesus is the lord jesus is lord and the gospel the good news is not his latest military victory is that he is the gospel of peace so what i want you to know is when you read the new testament and you read the gospels they are intentionally subversive documents they were written to undermine the empire to let people know that caesar is no God, but that God himself had come in the form of Jesus Christ to save the world and to bring true and lasting peace. But it used very political language for the day. And everybody understood that, that Christ was the one who was truly sent to us all. There's a history gap. So next week, We'll talk about the geographic gap. I really appreciate that you've been so attentive to listen to me for an entire hour. Do come up front and pick up one each of these, a small one. If you can read the small print, there's a larger print there, but get one of these that you can stick in your Bible and you can begin to look for these things. Go by the bookstore and pick up a copy of Oletta Wald's book if you wanna go further and have a practical way of applying these things that you've learned. Thanks for being here tonight.